message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn it to Psalm chapter 2. And really glad that you've joined us this morning. Psalm chapter 2, the passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, I'd love to invite you to be listening for the following three things in the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a story about King George III. King George III. Second, be listening for how many times God laughs in the Psalms. How many times does God laugh in the Psalms? And third, be listening where Psalm 2 is quoted in the New Testament. Where do we find Psalm 2 in the New Testament? Well, over the summer months, we've been spending time looking at the book of Psalms, and the Psalms are a collection of 150 songs that God's people would have sung corporately as they worshiped together at the temple. And the Psalms have also been a comfort to God's people over the centuries because they give us words to apply to almost any situation that we experience in life. Whether you're sad, you're joyful, you're angry, you're doubting, you're thankful, you're confident, there is a psalm that you can turn to in order to find words to pray, words to speak, words that resonate with your heart's disposition. The Psalms are really an invaluable portion of God's Word that help us make sense of our emotions as we seek to follow Jesus in this fallen world. And this morning, as we begin to wrap up this summer series on the Psalms, we're going to be looking at a Psalm that's classified a Messianic Psalm. It's a Psalm that is rooted in God's promise to build David a house, a promise that we read about just earlier in our Old Testament reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's important to know that when God promises to build David a house, it's another way of saying that God promises to build David a dynasty, a legacy, where one of his descendants will always be on the throne. It's a psalm written by David, Psalm 2 is, which isn't apparent in the subscript of the psalm itself, but we actually learn from Acts chapter 4 that David writes this psalm because the apostles attribute this psalm to their father David. So it's a psalm written by David. It's a psalm about David, who was God's chosen king and who was called to rule and to reign from the throne of Israel. And while it's a psalm that would have had an understandable meaning during the day and age in which it was written, It's also a psalm that has a much larger meaning, a more grand scope than even David himself knew at the time of his writing. So with that in mind, let's give our attention to the words that David wrote in Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. A few years ago, Rachel and I had the chance to go and see the Broadway musical Hamilton when it came through San Antonio. And it's a musical based on the founding of our country, with Alexander Hamilton being the main character in the story. And during the musical, there's a character who plays King George III from England. Many of you will know he was the king who the colonies were revolting against during the Revolution. And throughout the musical, as the revolution strengthens and the colonies gain more and more momentum, the character of King George appears on stage singing different songs. And the first song he sings after the revolution had been successful and the colonies had won their independence is a song entitled, You'll Be Back. (laughs) And in the song, King George sings the following lines, if you'll entertain me just for a minute. You say, the price of my love's not a price that you're willing to pay. You cry in your tea, which you hurl in the sea when you see me go by. Why so sad? Remember we had an arrangement when you went away. Now you're making me mad. Remember, despite our estrangement, I'm your man. And he goes on, you'll be back. Soon you'll see. You'll remember you belong to me. You'll be back. Time will tell. You'll remember that I served you well. Oceans rise. Empires fall. We have seen each other through it all. And when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. (laughs) Really funny song. Uh, Really creative musical. But if you look back on history, one of the things that you will see without reservation is that people quickly grow weary of being under the authority of a king. Populations grow tired of being under the yoke of an authority that continually uses them to enrich himself. We tend to rebel against other people who have too much authority over our lives, don't we? Especially if that authority doesn't lead to our general peace and flourishing. And, and that's the nature of humor, human government. We know that. It's, it's prone to corruption. It's liable to exalt a few at the expense of the many. It's prone to frustrate people. I mean, we've all seen how the well-known phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely, tends to be true. And because of that, we are hesitant and skeptical of anyone claiming absolute authority over our lives. We don't like the idea of being under Uh, another's authority and power and influence. We like to make our own decisions to exercise autonomy, don't we? And while this kind of skepticism can be good when it comes to discerning the motives of other fallen human beings who've been given authority in our lives, that same skepticism and hesitancy often bleeds over into our relationship with Jesus and the rightful claims of authority that he does have on our life. The fact is, we don't like anyone to have authority over us. 
You think about it. We don't want anyone to tell us what we should be doing with our money, with our time, with our talents, with our sexuality, with our compassions, with our energies. I mean, the spirit of our current age has actually been labeled by sociologists with the phrase expressive individualism. And it's a philosophy of life where we say, let me do me and you do you. And if I think it's right for me, who are you to tell me that it's wrong? It's a philosophy that is heavy on autonomy and individual rights, a philosophy that rejects any kind of objective authority in our lives. We are our own authority. It's also important to recognize that this philosophy of expressive individualism often leads to deeper relational and societal malfunctions. And the fact of the matter is that we don't like authority, but when we throw off appropriate authority, it leads to chaos and misery. And it was the Scottish writer George MacDonald who said, The one principle of hell is I am my own. I am my own. And what he means is that the one conviction everybody in hell shares, and it's also the one conviction that creates hell, it's the one conviction that has the potential to create a hell in your relationship, a hell in your marriage, a hell in your neighborhood, a hell in your community, a hell in your life, is if you operate on the principle, I am my own. Take the yoke off. I belong to no one but myself. I'm captain of my own soul. I'm master of my own fate. That will lead to misery. The Bible implicitly tells us in Genesis chapter 3 that the root of sin is the fact that we hate the idea of authority. We hate the idea of someone who has rights over us. That was why Adam and Eve decided to rebel. We hate someone else telling us what we can and what we can't do. We bristle at being creatures and not being in complete control. According to the scriptures, this mentality is really the root of all mankind's misery and suffering. We hate the idea of a king who has authority over us, who says, you belong to me. You're not your own. You've got to do as I say. And that's the reason the Bible says human beings don't just disbelieve God. We hate him in our natural state. We want to throw his yoke off our backs. We're not naturally inclined to follow his ways. We're not inclined to giving his authority weight in our lives. And Psalm 2 is all about the authority of God over his creation. All about how he relates to people who naturally hate him. And it doesn't take a biblical scholar to know that Psalm 2 follows Psalm 1. But what might not be evident is that these two psalms go together in many ways. They form a unified idea, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 do. Some even argue that they should be read together as one psalm. Psalm 1 is individual and personal. It's about your beliefs, but Psalm 2 is about the nations. It's public. Psalm 1 is the Father's way to live right, and Psalm 2 is the Father's anointed to live for. Psalm 1 is inviting you to ask, what kind of person are you? And Psalm 2 is asking you to look at the big picture of society. And frankly, that is hard to avoid these days, isn't it? Thinking about the big picture of society. I mean, we are bombarded with the big picture of our society on a daily basis, and it tends to be pretty polarized these days. 
Whether it's the constant talk about the next election, the upcoming docket of the Supreme Court, what some famous person thinks about the latest controversy. I mean, it feels like we are constantly confronted with big picture opinions about society. We can't avoid this type of chatter. But Psalm 2, it comes and it enters into the noise and the chaos of our lives and it invites us to rise above that chatter to recognize that we worship someone who is above all the trivial hot topics that are prone to dominate our minds, thoughts, and lead us into fear and anxiety. We believe that God is at work in the big picture. And Psalm 2 is a key for God's people to be reminded how He's at work. And though it was written over 3,000 years ago to a completely different context and culture, Psalm 2 continues to be essential in helping us discover God's grace and His peace in the midst of an increasingly complex and confusing world. Psalm 2 presents a story. It's a drama. It's a movement from the turmoil of the nations to the final blessing of residing in the kingdom of God. And I want you to see that it contains three acts. I want us to see the rage of the nations, the security of the anointed king, and the gracious invitation of God. And this is a longer introduction. I don't intend the points to be as long as the introduction was. But those are our three points this morning. The rage of the nations, the security of the anointed king, and the gracious invitation of God. First, let's give some attention to the rage of the nations. The first phrases communicate the posture of the nation so clearly. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do kings oppose God? Now, it's worth recognizing that when God refers to his covenant community, to those who are tied to him in faith, to his people in the Old Testament, he refers to them in the singular. He calls them his people, his nation. But when the Bible is talking about those who don't know or follow God, they're referred to in the plural, the nations or the peoples. And it's clear that in these first three verses, the psalmist is addressing those outside of God's covenant community, those who don't follow God, those who long to throw his yoke off their shoulders. The nations are raging. The kings have set themselves against God, which is a language of preparing for battle. They want to sever the bond that they have with God and burst his cords. In their mind, the religion of God is a straitjacket and they want to tear it off. The picture painted is one of a number of vassal states who long to break free from their overlord. And that's the old man impulse. It's the sinful impulse that lives in each one of us. We want to burst God's bonds. We want to throw his yoke off our back. And we see in verse 3 that the goal of the nation's rebellion was their unfettered freedom to do as they pleased. Some Hebrew scholars argue that the word cords at the end of verse 3 should be translated yoke. We've used that word often this morning. A yoke, as many of you know, is what owners put on their farm animals to direct them in the way they should go. It signifies authority. And with this in mind, it shows that the kings of the earth, they're not upset because they're prisoners and they've got chains on them. The kings of the earth are upset because they have an owner. It's the authority that is driving the kings of the earth crazy. They don't like this authority. 
There's also an interesting detail in the first verse that's easy to miss. In verse 1 of Psalm 2, our English translations use the word plot. But that's the same Hebrew word that's translated meditate in Psalm chapter 1, where it says, blessed is the man who meditates on God's law. So in contrast to the blessed man who meditates on God's law, according to Psalm 2, the wicked man meditates on rebelling against God. They're preoccupied with it. They delight in throwing off his yoke. And it isn't simply rebellion against God. We see in the psalm that it's rebellion against his anointed. Now, during the time the psalm was written, the anointed would have been David. David was the anointed with a little a, you might say. But you'll notice that the English translation has the word anointed capitalized. Look at it. And this is curious because in the Hebrew language, there isn't capitalization. There's no upper or lower case. This is the English translators helping us understand that the psalmist is talking about someone much greater than just David. The Hebrew word anointed in verse 2 is mashach, which is transliterated Messiah in English. Psalm 2 is talking about someone much greater than David, a Messiah with a capital M, the one we now know as David's greater son, Jesus. It's why Psalm 2 was one of the most quoted in the New Testament. The apostles were constantly using this psalm to explain who Jesus was. And the impulse we see in the first three verses of this psalm continues to drive leaders and nations who rage against God and King Jesus today. I mean, the reality is that those in power don't like those more powerful than them, do they? That those in authority don't want to be under someone else's authority. And so the nations, they still rage, the people still plot in vain. But as we follow along with the psalm, we see that it's futile to rebel. Look at verse 4. Amidst all this raging and plotting and meditating, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now this is one of the few times in Scripture where God is depicted as laughing. It happens two other times in the Psalms, and each time it's not a pleasant laugh. It's a laugh of derision, of mocking, where God is mocking the nations before him. God's response to the raging of the nations is laughter. And God's not perturbed. The psalmist paints a picture of a God who's sitting, relaxed, watching, listening, waiting, completely sovereign, not anxious in the least. Laughing and mocking the blind arrogance of the nations. And in verses 6 and 7, we get God's answer to the nation's blind rage the people's busy plotting or meditating. And it's emphatic. God is going to do something. He's decided to take action. Against the backdrop of the raging nations, we see God respond to the rebellion of the peoples by enthroning His beloved Son. Now, in the original context, these words refer to the King of Israel. In fact, this psalm was probably read during the coronation ceremonies for a new king. But when you look at the promises of this psalm, like we see in verse 8, look at it. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You get the sense that God is talking about something even greater than what Israel ever experienced. 
I mean, how in the world could a king of a tiny nation as small as Israel take out the superpowers around it? Assyria, Babylon, the Egyptians, much less all the nations of the world. I mean, it would be like Ireland toppling Russia or China or the U.S. and installing their government as a new world order. It would be ridiculous. There wasn't an Israelite king that ever came close to seeing this promise fulfilled. Now, either the psalmist was profoundly delusional or God wanted his people to cast their eyes forward to a grander king. And there is only one king who could fulfill the promises of this psalm. Jesus, the king, to whom God spoke the words, You're my son, at his baptism. Jesus, about whom the centurion said as he was dying on the cross, Surely this man was the son of God. Jesus, about whom Paul wrote that he was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power according to his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the King. He's the Messiah. He's the Anointed One. He is the Son that Psalm 2 speaks of. And he's the one who's in complete control even as we sit here and speak this morning. Look at verse 9. The word translated to break or to rule can also be translated to shepherd. To shepherd. Jesus is pictured in this psalm as a shepherd who leads his people with a shepherd's rod of iron that cannot and never will break. It'll never be bested by any dangerous enemy. Never have a challenge that he's not competent to lead his people through. We can be secure this morning because our God is completely secure. He has established his king whose reign reaches to the ends of the earth. And as we wrap up this morning, I want us to see the gracious invitation that we see at the end of this psalm. And it's amazing. We see the beginning of that invitation in verse 10, where the psalmist once again turns his attention to the kings and the rulers of the world, but he issues them an invitation. This time, the rebellious nations are given an invitation to come and to experience the peace of God. In this psalm, God actually displays a measured restraint against the rebellions of the people. And there's no doubt that he's angry. I mean, God is angry at sin. He's angry at the rebellion. He's angry at their selfishness. But he continues to be patient. Notice that the threats in verse 5 and verse 9, they're in the future tense. God will act to put down the rebellion of the nations, but there's something that he wants to do first. He wants all people to come and to receive mercy and the victory of his anointed. God is inviting the kings of the earth and anyone else who might listen to move toward Jesus, to serve the Lord, to take refuge in the Son. And it's an invitation to stop raging and start rejoicing, to stop plotting and to start serving. What we see at the end of the psalm is that the worst people on earth are invited to come to Jesus, to kiss the Son. And if they would do that, if they would take refuge in Him, they won't just be spared, they will be overwhelmingly blessed. And this is an invitation not just to the kings of the earth through Psalm 2, but to anyone who has rebelled against the Lord's anointed to anyone who has bristled against God's authority in their lives. 
And that's good news for people like you and me, because at one point we were set against the Lord's anointed ourselves. I mean, even God's people don't always welcome the one that God sends. It was the prophet Ezekiel who said, Thus says the Lord, This is Jerusalem. This is my people. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her, but she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations. No one is clean, not even God's people. In fact, they're, they're thrown under the bus more than the nations because of the wickedness that they engage in. The very people whom God loved and saved, those who had received His promises, the giving of the law, were the very ones who were raging and plotting against God. Now that should sound familiar to us. That impulse to rage and plot, it's strong. And it's got to be pretty strong in the fallen heart because if you flip forward in your Bible, you see that it was the religious leaders who plotted to take down the son when he arrived on the scene. The very ones who should have welcomed him were the ones who put the Messiah to death. This psalm is quoted at the end of Acts chapter 4, which we read earlier. And the believers recognize at that time that the rage of the nations led to the death of the anointed one when they said, truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate among the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Everyone's included. Everyone's raging. Everyone's plotting. Anyone who had power was set against the anointed one, Jesus. Yet the one we've rebelled against has moved towards us in grace. In the rage of the nations, it didn't undo God's plan. It was a part of God's plan. It contributed to it. And having won the victory, now the psalmist invites rebels to kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun while there's still time. This is a day of grace. One day soon will be a day of judgment. Everyone will bow the knee. You and I have the opportunity to do it now voluntarily. I love how one pastor put it when he said, there is no refuge from Jesus. There is no refuge from God's anointed one. There is only refuge in him. And so come to him this morning afresh and let's find the refuge and the peace that we need. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you are working all things out according to your good purposes in this world and in our lives. We recognize that we are often the ones who rebel against your authority in our lives. We don't like anyone to tell us what to do or how to live, how to think. And so we apologize, we repent, and we come to you for the peace and the refreshment that we desperately need. We need to be led. And so we pray that you would lead us into righteousness, into holiness, into joy for your name's sake and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.